invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Mark. We return once again to Mark chapter 9, and we'll be looking at verses 42 through 50. If you have looked at this, um, or if you take a glance at it, you'll know that it is a serious portion of Scripture, and it is, it is difficult in places partly because portions of it are challenging to understand, but I think the hardest thing about this passage is not the difficulty of understanding, but the difficulty of obedience to God's Word. So I covet your prayers as we approach this passage and ask that you not only pray for me, but pray for yourselves, for that we, together as God's people, might have the courage and the strength and the fortitude to be obedient to what His Word calls us to. So let us pray, and then let us read this text from Mark chapter 9. Lord God, we bow before you very conscious of our need of grace, of our need for mercy and forgiveness. Lord, I pray that as we approach this serious passage that you would give us grace to understand it, and Lord, strength and grace to obey it. Lord, we pray. Lord, we ask that we would be doers of your word tonight and not just hearers only deceiving our own selves, Lord. I pray that your word would, your spirit would do uh, the work, Lord, that, that needs done in our hearts. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I would like to back up to verse 38 to begin our reading. So let us pick up in verse 38 of John chapter 9. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung about his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word tonight. I backed up to pick up some verses that we have previously handled uh, the last time we were together um, and looking at Mark chapter 9. But that was a number of weeks ago and I think it's important for us to see the setting in which the words that come to us in verses 42 to 50, and the setting that, that, that those are in. And as I thought about this text, I realized that, 
that perhaps I have titled this sermon wrong. You'll, you'll notice in your bulletin that, that I have titled it, uh, Dealing with Sin Ruthlessly. Well, certainly we want to be ruthless in our dealing with sin. And that, I think, is the, the point of this message. But I think perhaps some stronger language than simply dealing with sin is in order here. For when we think of dealing with our sin, too often I fear that we seek to deal with our sin in the way that we want to deal with it. We seek to mitigate it. We seek to lessen the effects of it. We want to keep it neatly tucked away where we think it won't hurt anyone or matter. We think we can manage it. But this is not what Jesus prescribes for us in this text. What we have read in rather graphic terms speaks of battling sin ruthlessly. Jesus gives us strong words to help us see the seriousness of sin and where it will lead. And I want us to consider this text under three headings. I I have to confess, I borrowed this outline from a friend of mine. I actually asked him for permission. But I think this is helpful. Battling sin is necessary. Secondly, battling sin is costly. And thirdly, battling sin is worth it. First, battling sin is necessary. It is necessary in the church and also within ourselves. Verse 42 speaks of one who would cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And then it pronounces a strong judgment upon that person who would do such a thing. Now this verse may seem odd to us, and and perhaps it's, it's better to connect this with the previous passage. And that's part of the reason I read what came right before it. Remember there that the disciples had done two things that that showed their own sin, their pride, their, their evil ambition. First thing they did was they argued about who was the greatest. And in response to that, Jesus called them to humility, to self abandonment. And then remember that it was John, the beloved disciple of all the disciples, he was the one that that saw another follower of Christ that was not part of their crowd, that was not part of the 12 disciples. There was one that was casting out a demon, probably one of the 70 that Jesus had previously commissioned to do just that thing, to cast out demons. And John said, look, master, this guy over here, he's casting out demons in your name and he's not one of us. And what did Jesus do? He said, he that is not against us is for us. And then in the next verse, it says, Jesus talks about the rewards for those that would aid the followers of Christ. And then verse 42 stands in contrast then to verse 41, where there is a severe judgment threatened to those who cause Christ's followers to sin or to stumble. So there's two questions that that come to my mind and perhaps have come to yours as well. Who are these little ones that is uh, listed in verse 42? And what does it mean to cause someone to sin? Well, I think from the context we could see that, that the little one or the insignificant one was this unnamed man who was casting out the demons... John the disciple had quite possibly caused this man to sin in some way. John tried to stop the good things that this man was doing because he he wasn't part of their group. He was insignificant in their eyes. And And we as the people of God should seek to help and guard the faith of every believer no matter how weak or insignificant they are in man's eyes. 
What does it mean then to cause to sin or stumble as some versions state it? Well, this could be an enticement to sin. Certainly, we would never want to do that in, to in any way entice another believer to sin. But it could also be that they're a stumbling block or some impediment in the way of, of their walk with Christ. Or as one definition said, to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. To cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. I think we need to think about that and reflect upon that because we are told, brothers and sisters, we are told in multiple places in Scripture that the, that the relationships within the body of Christ must be marked by love. We are identified as followers of Christ by the love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are told to build up one another, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to show hospitality to one another, to be kind to one another, to forgive one another. And we do all of these things out of the love that we have been shown in Jesus Christ. And if we fail to do these things, we, might, we could cause our brothers and sisters to sin, to stumble. We could cause them to begin to distrust the Christ whom we represent, and to whom we as believers are joined. We are joined to Christ. Christ lives within the believer. And if you mistreat another believer, you are mistreating Christ. Think about Paul, who, who at the time of his conversion, of course, was called Saul. And, and, and God arrested him, literally stopped him in his tracks when he was on the road to Damascus. In his conversion experience, we read in the gospel of, of or in the in the book of Acts in, in chapter nine, and, and again he recounts it in his testimony in later chapters, and 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 remember that Christ spoke to him and he said, Saul, Saul, you are persecuting me. He said, um, he says, Why are you persecuting me? And we we know that Paul or Saul had not been personally persecuting Christ, but he was persecuting Christ in that he was persecuting his followers, and in that he was persecuting Christ. He was persecuting those who had been united to Christ in faith. So tonight, if you are mistreating a brother or sister in Christ, you're mistreating Christ. If you're holding a grudge against someone in the church, you're holding a grudge against Christ. And I fear that we can too easily excuse our mistreatment of other Christians because they may be difficult or awkward or just hard to love. But we are called to love one another with brotherly affection. We are called to outdo one another in showing honor. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12. And Jesus says, it is better that one would die a quick death by drowning with a heavy stone around your neck, and cause a Christian to stumble, one for whom Christ died. But this text doesn't just deal with relationships within the church and sins between brothers and sisters in the church. No, verse 43 helps us see that sin, that the sin we must deal with is within us. Where is this sin, and to whom does it belong? It is ours. Look at verses 43 and 45 and 47. It is my hand. It is my foot. It is my eye. The sin is mine. 
It is ours. It's not someone else's. It is mine. It is necessary to battle sin because sin remains in us. As I thought about this passage, I thought about why. Why, why Lord, do we have these sins in us as believers? Why must we continue to battle sin? I'm not sure I can fully answer that tonight. I know that we should, in our battle with sin, constantly rely upon Christ. We should constantly reflect upon his work for us and in us. But Paul says, tells us in Romans 7 that, that he found within himself this battle. He said, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. John Owen said about this text, believers have experience of, or as we would say, believers experience the power and efficacy of indwelling sin. They find it in themselves. They that find not its power are under its dominion. Did you hear that? If you don't think that sin lies within you, you are under its dominion. You are in grave danger. And we should not be surprised at the sin that remains in us. We should be grieved, certainly, but not surprised. But neither should we be content with its presence. Owen goes on, Whosoever would contend against it shall know and find that it is present with him, that it is powerful in him. He shall find the stream to be strong who swims against it, though he who rolls along with it be insensible of it. In other words... If, if, you, if you're not swimming against the stream of the sin that dwells within you, then you're apathetic to it. Then you are in grave danger. Owen, of course, was a, a master of the inner life, as, as one pastor has called him. He was a man who, who knew sin and wrote extensively about how we ought to deal with it. And, and it seems that, that we, we think, why? Like, like we said, why do we have to battle with this? But... But it is. it is. It is part of the life of a believer. Paul says in Galatians 5 that we are to walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another. We see this battle within us. We think of, I thought of this song that we sang, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. As we reflect upon the work of Christ and what he did and the sufferings that he endured for us, it should help us to see the seriousness of our sin. In the writings of Anselm, he writes in the form of a dialogue and answers the questions of, of one bozo who was questioning the necessity of the incarnation, why God had to become man. And he said a phrase that, that I hope sticks with you. He says, you have not yet considered the weightiness of your sin. You have not considered the gravity of your sin if you think that God did not have to become a man so he could bear the penalty for man's sin. For you see that, that sin is so great because it is against an infinite God. And therefore it could only be dealt with by the infinite God-man, Jesus Christ. So do we see the necessity of battling sin? Do we see it as a grave danger that it is? One preacher I listened to on this text gave this illustration of, 
of one that might go to a doctor and receive very bad news. Very bad news of a disease that was ravaging a person's body. And, and he would only give, the doctor would only give this individual weeks perhaps to live. But then, in some strange shift of, of action, the doctor would go over to a window and open the window and just say, you know, let's not worry about this right now. It's such a beautiful spring day. Let's just think about what a beautiful day it is. You would probably be speechless. You would probably think, what in the world is this man's problem? Why are they not concerned? And then you would say, listen, doctor, we have to talk about this. This is serious. My life is on the line. We should think that way about our sin. We must be serious about battling it because sin is a serious issue. And when we see it in us, we are called to battle against it mightily. Secondly, we see that battling sin is costly. If there's anything that this text teaches us, it's certainly that. Jesus is talking about what it means to follow him, what it means to be his disciple. He's calling us to radical and ruthless discipleship. Radical in its exclusivity in following Christ, in its dedication to him and to his cause, and ruthless in in seeking to kill sin and the things that would drag us down. He is saying that we are to excise that which causes us to sin and prevents us from following Christ and obeying his commands. These commands to to cut off our feet, our hands, or, or putting out our eyes. Of course, he is speaking in hyperbole. But, and there has been some in church history that have taken these commands literally. But, but we know that a man without hands can still sin. A man that is blind could still lust. It is, Jesus is talking about dealing ruthlessly with sin, battling sin, actively killing it, and removing those things that might lead us to sin. As Matthew Henry said, mortify the darling lust. Kill it, crucify it, starve it, make no provision for it. Let the idols that have become delectable things be cast away as detestable things. Keep at a distance from that which is a temptation, though ever so pleasing. Keep at a distance from that which is a temptation, though ever so pleasing. I've heard a a preacher that that I greatly respect, say the reason we keep sinning is because we like it. I don't like to say that. And I hope that causes you to shudder as well. And I trust that God by His Holy Spirit would work in you to help you hate sin and love the Savior more. Satan would make us feel that we have given up much to follow Christ And if we have trifled with sin and if sin has become entrenched in our hearts, it will be painful to remove it. But we must, we must, saints of God, be willing to, for Christ's sake and for the preservation of our own souls. This text, I think, helps us to see that there's something very physical about sin. It's it's talking about our eye. It's talking about our hand. It's talking about our foot. And and some have tried to say, well, the eye represents the, the, the lust of the flesh, and the hand represents things, hand, uh, sins you would commit with your hands, and your feet represent you know, walking towards sin, and maybe so. But I think, I think if nothing else, we should think about the fact that there is something very physical about sin and temptation 
that Jesus is saying we have to deal with it radically and ruthlessly. Romans 6.13 tells us, Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Our hands, our feet, our eyes, every part of us is made for God's glory and should be presented as instruments of righteousness, things by which we, we do God's will and we bring glory to him. We are called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, as we're told in Romans 12.1. And Satan tempts us to sin, and he tempts us to use our bodies in sinful ways, and we are to kill those sins. Again, I I can't preach a a sermon about this without quoting Owen, because I love Owen so much in, in how he deals with this. He says in rather graphic language, he says, we are to lay our hands upon the throat of these things and not to let it go until it has stopped breathing. And as I, as I, as I read that quote and, and thought about it, I thought about when I was, when I was a young person, my, uh, my brother uh, started doing some trapping of, of fur-bearing animals. And so I, I wanted to follow in his footsteps, and so I got up early uh, several mornings and set some traps hoping to catch a raccoon, because that was the, the, the pelt that, that I thought would make me a few dollars. Unfortunately, I caught a possum. And I, I hope no one here has, has a fondness for possums, because in my mind, they, they are not a beautiful animal, certainly not when they're dying. Because that early November morning, when I was about 14 years old, I, I went out and, and tried to kill this possum, thinking that, that it would die easily. But it did not die easily. And to this day, I can still remember that possum lying at my feet, bloodied and beaten, but still snarling and baring its teeth at me. And I thought about, we have to be so resolute in killing sin that no matter how much it snarls or rears its ugly head at us, we have to be persistent in putting it to death in our hearts. And this is something that we cannot just think that we can simply be done with. It is a work that we must dedicate our lives towards. And the testimony of seasoned saints is that this is a work that must continue throughout the whole course of our Christian walk. It's almost like fighting a zombie possum. We have to keep killing it. Romans 8.13 calls us to this. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That putting to death is that old term mortification. Colossians 3.5 is very similar language. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And we cannot surrender or retreat in this fight. I think of Ephesians uh, 6, and, and we just studied this uh, last week in Sunday school about the armor of God. We are called, we are reminded that we are in a battle. That we are soldiers and we have to be at the ready because there is a real devil that desires to trip us up. That desires our soul. But we are not to go into the battle ill-equipped. We have been given armor and a sword We are to wear these things, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of gospel readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and last but certainly not least, the sword of the Spirit, which is, by the way, the only offensive part of our garment, the Word of God. 
And we are to do battle with the enemy of our souls. We are to set about the work of killing sin in our lives. We must take up the armor that God has provided for us. There is work involved in this. It will likely be painful. But true disciples seek to kill sin in their lives and remove those things that might lead them to sin. Battling sin, killing sin is necessary. It is costly. And finally, it is worth it. It is clear from Scripture that there are eternal consequences on the line here. This is an uncomfortable passage because it talks about sin, but not just that it talks about sin, but it talks about what happens if we don't deal with sin. There is, as some preachers of old, it seems, have, have, have said, a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. I trust that this is very evident here in the Scripture. The word hell is mentioned in in verse 43 and 45, 47, um, and again in, in described in verse 48. You may have noticed that verses 44 and 46 appear to be missing. I say appear to be because the, the versification, the verses division was something that was not part of the inspired text. It, it came many years later. Um, but what is, what is not in here, and if you have a King James Bible, what you will see is a repetition of verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And this phrase was not included in some earlier texts, and so the translators of the ESV and other recent versions have chosen not to include those verses. I only give you that as a means of explanation. I think it in no way lessens the force of this text Because I think this is serious and we need to feel the seriousness of it. I think the Lord Jesus wants us to feel a little bit of the heat of hell tonight. And he warns us about our sin. There is a hell. There is a place of eternal suffering and punishment for those who reject God. When we think about our sin, when we consider the very temporary joy that might come from indulging in it. Jesus is saying we should think of the end result of unmortified sin. He says it is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Hell is a place that we can only imagine. We don't know what all it entails. But we know that, it, that sin, as we said, is against an infinitely holy God. And so the punishment for sin is a place of infinite and eternal punishment. It's a place where the wrath of God is poured out upon sin and upon unbelieving men. These are hard words, but these are the words of our Savior. But the good news is that there's not only a hell to shun, there is a heaven to gain. Jesus is speaking to his followers. He's speaking to his disciples. He's telling them what it means to follow him. Following him involves this. It involves killing sin. And three times he speaks of something better. It's better for you to be crippled or lame or without an eye and enter the kingdom of God. We have, as God's children, have been given such a great salvation. And we must remember that one mark of a true believer is that they deal with their sin. This is not the way we earn entrance into heaven. I don't want us to step into legalism, to think that that we in some way can earn God's favor by by living or appearing a certain way. No, it is only because of Christ's death and 
and His sinless life and sacrificial death for us. And it is only as we place our faith and trust in Him that we can be assured of eternity with Him. But Jesus is saying, if you're a follower of me, this is how you will live. You will seek to mortify sin. And not only are there eternal stakes in this scenario, there are things to consider in this life as well. It is worth it in the here and now. He tells the disciples there in the final verse, have salt in yourselves. We know that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount told them that they were the salt of the earth. And we know that salt has been and is used for flavor and for preservation. And we are called as God's people to have that influence on those around us. If we're going to be the salt and the light, as Jesus also said in Matthew, if we're going to be the salt that the world needs, then we must be serious about dealing with our sin. I'm sure that you, as well as I, could relate accounts of people you knew and in whom you trusted and had confidence and looked up to that, that did not do as Jesus called his disciples to. They did not mortify sin and they shipwrecked their faith. And they, they were not the salt and light that they should have been. And, and they could have even become a stumbling block to others because they did not mortify sin when they should have. Battling sin, saints of God, is necessary Battling sin is costly and battling sin is worth it. Because there's a threat of hell, there's the promise of a reward in heaven, and there's a blessing in the here and now as we can be salt to the world around it, around us. So make this your work. I leave you with the questions that Owen asks in his masterful work, The Mortification of Sin, where he asks, do you mortify? Do you make it? your daily work, be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. So I ask you, are you actively killing sin in your life? Are you seeking to live a life that impacts the world around you? Are you seeking to live at peace with one another, as the scripture calls us to, to be a blessing to those around you? May God give us grace to be obedient to his word. Let us pray.